this is like a leading indicator of sort of that innovation cycle. Like if I see that there's a bunch of projects that are being, that the venture capitalists are seeding on Solana, for example, versus Ethereum, then that to me is a leading indicator that there's, there's some serious capital being put into the Solana ecosystem. Just quickly on this, first of all, this is very insightful. And I love how you phrase it as the Ethereum GDP. I think uh, even for new people who are in the crypto space, if they see this Ethereum framework um, and they see this particular slide, they would be like, wow, this makes sense. Like Ethereum is a whole network ecosystem and it's not just speculation happening. We can see gaming happening. We can see, you know, NFT happening. Stable coins are also happening. to a special episode of The Rundown. We're at episode 11, and today I've got my co-host Michael with me. Michael Nato, the creator of the Ethereum Investment Framework Report. We're now at quarter four of Ethereum Investment Framework Report, is it? Third, third issue, third issue. Yo, but we are in Q4, we are in Q4 of 2023. Yeah, no, good call on Q4. This is the third issue. This thing has taken on a life of its own a little bit. I think when we first covered the first issue, it was about 75 pages. It has grown to about over 130 pages now. So as I had mentioned, we are you know, trying to make this thing just the most robust document that you can find within Ethereum and the Ethereum ecosystem from both a qualitative and, and quantitative perspective. We're gonna obviously dive into a lot of the data into it today in this episode. But yeah, pumped, pumped to cover it. This is almost gonna be like a, a quarterly earnings call for Ethereum this week. Amazing. Look, I'm so looking forward to it. As you know, I went recently to the top business school in India and everybody over there are pumped for the Ethereum investment framework report as well. They are fans of you. They've told me that when Michael comes to India, they're going to give you a red carpet service. So Michael, you should think about touring India because you're getting very popular in India among the esteemed Wall Street equivalent of India crowd. But yeah, we all are pumped for the Ethereum Investment Framework Report. Everybody from Proof of Work Podcast to the DeFi Report subscribers, everybody is pumped for it. And yeah, this is the special episode. We're just going to deep dive on the Ethereum Investment Framework. So Michael, let me start off for people who are not familiar with the previous issues of the Ethereum investment framework. What is it? Yeah, great question. It is a, I, I believe, and I'm I'm a little biased as, as the author of the report, but I think it's probably the most comprehensive coverage of Ethereum and the Ethereum ecosystem from like both quantitative and qualitative perspective. What is it is a great question because I think what I, when I started creating this, I was trying to speak to the Mike Nato of the world from three years ago that maybe was trying to learn about what's all this on-chain data? How do we understand Ethereum's business model? How do we understand the problems that Ethereum solves? How it's being used today? How it might be used in the future? How the network is scaling? These were all the things that I was trying to understand. And crypto is extremely complex to get those answers. You really need to go in a lot of different places. And this is one of the challenges for anybody who's an analyst or a researcher or an asset manager or a financial service provider. You know, you're going to Twitter, you're going to, you know, various places on the internet or maybe LinkedIn, maybe if you're going to Facebook, you're trying to follow various people from the industry. There is a number of different data providers out there. Everyone is speaking a different language. Obviously, crypto is very tribal. And so I wanted to create something where it's one document. It kind of goes through 
everything you would need to know from a historical perspective. All of our data starts at network inception. So we go from 2015 all the way through current. So we can see the natural progression of how Ethereum's network effects are building over time. Uh, we can see, you know, how the, the blockchain is being used, what use cases are starting to emerge. So yeah, just a really comprehensive overview. It's written in a very non-technical way. The beginning of the document goes through sort of history of open source technology and how that, you know, plays into crypto. I believe crypto is really just the, the latest expression of open source technology. And then we get into just sort of how the ecosystem's building out. It, it really builds out in a very similar way to the way the internet out in terms of having a network of networks. That is extremely complex if you're an analyst because this is not like studying a single company. You really need to understand the whole ecosystem and the various business models and how, how they all interact together. So that's really what we go through in the Ethereum investment framework. This is the third issue of it. You know, the goal is to make it better um, every quarter. We're going to go through a ton of the data to a, most of it is sourced from, from token terminal. I mean, I'll also share how we get that data from the terminal, but yeah, excited, excited to get into it uh, today with you. Are we going to get some sneak peek of all the data that we're going to see in Ethereum investment framework in this episode? It's, a, it's definitely a sneak peek. We don't want to bore people going through every single metric. And if you're listening to this, I recommend as always, people check out the YouTube Check out the DeFi Reports YouTube channel. We'll have, you know, the visual presentation of this episode. But yeah, we're going to we're gonna sort of show, I think, a lot of the data points. We're not going to get into every single one. We also have valuation frameworks and we have price targets and things like that in the framework. We're not going to get into that on this episode. You'll have to download the, 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 the document. It is free and anybody can download that. We'll, we'll have a link in the show notes. But yeah, I think um, people are going to get to learn a lot about what's happening on chain Ethereum in this episode. Amazing. So maybe you can start off, you know, uh, tell us what are some key insights that we should know about as it pertains to the health of the Ethereum network as we head into 2024, which is something that will be reflective uh, from your report. So if we can get some sneak peek of that to your report, that would be great. Yeah, let's, I think the sneak peek is that, you know, the network is scaling, the number of users, the number of the amount of on-chain activity, the developers, and we're seeing sort of a lot of developers maybe not move from the Ethereum L1, but but certainly more developers showing up on the L2s, uh, which we'll get into. And why don't we, maybe it makes sense to just sort of start this like quarterly earnings call. And, and I'll start with just kind of the, the profit and loss uh, of the network. Let me share my screen here. I'm sort of following that like, you know, quarterly earnings call type of format here, pretending uh, not that I'm the CFO uh, of the Ethereum network by any means, anybody can access this data. We use token terminal to, to get the data, but that's one of the cool things about public blockchains is they are permissionless systems I and mean, anybody can get access to this data. I'm gonna primarily focus on you know this year, so FY23, and then comparing to last year, there's there's some interesting uh, insights to pull out here. Just from you know a high level, the network did about $2.4 uh, billion of revenue that again is transaction fees paid by users and then that revenue is being paid out to the validators around the world. There's over over a million validators on the Ethereum network uh, now. These people are located all over the world, and they're earning those those transaction fees. We can get into we'll get into sort of the difference between transaction fees burned and then the amounts that accrue to the the validators in, in a moment here. But in terms of like you know just the daily you know average daily uh, fees that the network is doing, six point five uh, million. In 2023, that was down from 11.7 last year. This is year two 
of the crypto winter. And so we're we're going to see a theme here where almost everything is down from last year. We, we were up in Q4, but almost everything at a high level is down. And you'll notice that, you know, we have the data going back all the way to 2015. You will notice the cyclical nature of you can identify when you were in a bull period, you know, FY18, we saw a huge, huge spike up crypto winter FY19, right? Started to come back in, in 20. And then we had a massive bull run in 2021, where the network did almost 10 billion in revenue. You know, I shared something on LinkedIn this week, related to Ethereum's revenues and, and Ethereum is the second large, second fastest technology ecosystem, I'll call it $10 billion in revenue. The only faster tech company and Ethereum's not a company, we're just using this as a comparison, was Google, right? Was the only other technology ecosystem company, wh whatever, to get to $10 billion in revenue faster than Ethereum. And it did almost did 10 billion in one year in 2021. So we're expecting, you know, this to slope up again at 2024, 2025, look like the setup is pretty good, but certainly down for the year here. So $2.4 billion in total revenue in terms of what got paid out to the supply side. That is again, the validators, $391 million. That gets us to a gross profit of just over 2 billion. And then of course, the other piece of this is the token incentives. And those are the consensus rewards that are, that is network inflation right? So the, the validators are being paid user fees, but then they're also getting this network inflation, which is the incentive for them to provide those services. That came in at $1.39 billion. And that leads us to block space profitability number of $623 million. Yeah, I think this is great. This was fantastic. And you're rightfully said that everything is down compared to previous. And you alluded to why. The viewers would love to know since the only thing that is up is block space profitability. What does that mean? And what do you attribute that profitability to considering everything has gone down? Great question because yes, the revenues are significantly down, but the network was profitable for the first time ever. This is this is an interesting question. So what happened here? The, the big thing that happened is you reduced your expenses. So the token incentives and people can view this from different perspectives. I consider it an expense of the network because you're issuing new tokens. If the validators sell those tokens, you know, you're putting downward pressure on, on the price. So there's different ways to view it. I view it as an expense to the network. Hard to, to really quantify if it's being sold off. But the key thing here was that the merged proof of stake last year. So in November of 22, the network had its official merge from the proof of work consensus mechanism to proof of stake. What was revealed through that process to me as an analyst was that the network was just wildly overpaying the the miners on the Ethereum network. So the operating expenses were about, you know, 13 13,500 ETH per day was being paid out to the miners. And once we moved to proof of stake and we got rid of most of the operating expense that comes with, you know, running the mining equipment, the electricity costs, you take that out, those miners can be profitable. They're now validators. You know, they can be profitable without by reducing the amount of issuance to them. So that's really the key takeaway as we went from proof of work to proof of stake and doing so reduced operating expenses by about 80%. And so that's how you can get to this place where you did significantly less revenue, but the network was actually profitable because you reduced that, that spend, which is really paying out equity to your validators in the form of those consensus rewards. So that's that's the big takeaway to me is 
in a in a crypto winter, and we'll get into this with the circulating supply of the tokens, the network was profitable and it was also deflationary in a crypto winter, which is really interesting because that setup, what is this number going to look like if we get into a bull period, right? Uh, it's going to be a big difference. So any anything to add on there before we get into the, uh, the circulating supply? Yeah, look, just quickly, I think this was brilliant. So generally, when people look at balance sheet and financial statements, I mean, you know, when they would look at it for a company, they'll see gross profit and then they'll see either retained earnings or shareholder payouts, dividend payouts. So what you're alluding to is token incentives is similar to, let's say, payouts to a shareholder. Would it, would it be a fair statement to make? There's different ways to look at this. So you have, like, if you were going to look at it as like, if you're saying payouts to shareholders, do you mean dividends? Is that sort of the dividend payments? Yeah, like a, a shareholder, not really like to like, like a dividend payout, but the incentive for a shareholder is that capital appreciation and they'll get, uh, you know, dividends out. I guess for token holders, the incentive is token incentives plus the capital appreciation for holding that token. So would it be a fair you know, comparison to make in I that sense? I think so. I mean, there's different ways to think of it. I think of the token incentives as the network paying out its equity. I actually compare this more to a startup paying out its equity to its early employees because what, it, what, the, network, what the network is doing here is it's incentivizing these service providers, that's how I think of the validators, they're service providers validating the tr network transactions to incentivize them to come in. We're essentially paying out equity, which is the token inflating itself, right? And that's being offset by the fee burns. Um, now, you know, but if you if you own ETH, the asset, and maybe you're not actually actively running a node and, and, and the hardware to validate the network, but you want to earn some of the revenue and some of the, the yield, you can take your ETH and then stake it with somebody else. You're delegating your stake to them. And now you are earning some of those fees. And I consider that almost like the dividend payments coming off. So like the dividends are more the actual fees of the network. Token incentives are more like the network's paying out its equity a little bit. And that gets offset through the, the token economic, like monetary policy that gets offset as on-chain activity ramps up. Amazing. I think that was a great uh, distinction that I think a lot of viewers would have enjoyed and enlightened by it. So thanks a lot for that, Michael. Are we going to see the circulating supply where you wanted to visually yeah, show us? Yeah, let's take a look at the circulating supply. I think this is pretty interesting too. Um, you know, again, looking at 2023 and then comparing to last year, you know, a lot of people may be aware that the network went through, we just mentioned it, but the network went through that proof of consensus mechanism change and proof of work to proof of stake. There was also a, an upgrade called EIP-1559 that upgraded the sort of fee structure on Ethereum. And in doing so, about 80% of the transaction fees are being burned, which essentially acts as a stock buyback. So the way, to, the way I think of this is like, imagine if, you know, Apple or Amazon, as they're selling more products and services, they're taking some of those revenues that come in through those sales and they're automatically buying back some of the shares, which is an interesting kind of automatic flywheel. So as more on-chain activity ramps up, users are paying transaction fees to access services on the network and the network is burning about 80% of those transaction fees, which reduces that new issuance. Right. So this is the, we just mentioned the sort of the network is paying out its equity. This is the issued line here. And then the network is offsetting that with this burn, this automatic buyback slash burn mechanism. And we can see that we burned more tokens 
2023 than we issued by by a pretty good margin. And ultimately, that that led to a drop in in the actual supply of circulating ETH, right? If you're a holder of ETH, this is important. Ethereum is the only network where the supply actually went down last year. Even Bitcoin is actually adding to its supply over time. That 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 is in a disinflationary rate, so it's going down over time until all the tokens are issued. And this doesn't mean that it's always going to be this way. It's possible that if on-chain activity, you know, dropped, and the network still has to incentivize those those validators, you're inflating the token supply. So you need you need on-chain activity to offset. Um, so it, it makes a lot of sense. I think this is a really, really well-designed token economic system, the way Ethereum has done it. And this EIP-1559 fee structure has now been copied by many other layer one blockchain networks. So it, it seems to be working. This has become kind of a, a bit of a standard, I would say. But the key takeaway is that the network was defla deflationary uh, for the year. Got it. So Michael, so does that mean that you also believe in the meme that Ethereum is ultrasound money? Uh, you know, it's a meme. I, I don't necessarily believe in that in that meme. To me, it's it, it can be what people want it to be. Like Bitcoin is, you could say that Bitcoin's a meme and digital gold is a meme. Like, you know, I, I think it goes both ways. But I think when people came up with that meme, they were looking at the the drop in new issuance at the time that that was implemented. It looked like it was going to equate to about three Bitcoin havocs, and it was it was a it was a sort of data driven study to say, you know, if we think this is going to play out as we as we expect, it's sort of like three Bitcoin havings, and then somehow the ultrasound money meme uh, was was spawned out of that. But you can imagine, you know, if you're if you're thinking about it, we just showed that year two of a crypto winter, the the revenues are on-chain activity was way down, revenues were way down in 2023. But if we got back up to where we were in 21 or surpassed that, I, I actually expect it to to go much fa much farther than that. Now, what does that start to look like in terms of, you know, the network goes deflationary in a crypto winter year? So what is that going to look like, and what does that mean for the price of Ethereum? You know, how much of this supply is going to be available on exchanges, things like that. It's this flywheel and the way that this token economic structure is set up could get pretty interesting in a bull market. So so that's something to look forward to. Amazing. Amazing. What are the other, you know, key metrics that we're going to see on the Ethereum investment framework report? I think, you know, if you are somebody, if you're an investor and you want to hold on to some ETH, you have a long-term thesis for for the network and, and the asset. You know, I think it's really useful to understand, you know, what is the difference between just holding the asset and maybe you're just putting that in cold storage and you're just a long-term investor. What is the difference between that and then staking the ETH? So becoming a, you know, not necessarily, you don't necessarily have to run the hardware yourself and go through all that complexity. You could simply, you know, send some of your ETH into a liquid staking protocol, a DeFi protocol, something like Lido, and then you'd be able to capture some of this yield, which averaged out to about 4.7% uh, last year. This is sort of a breakdown of what that looks like. If you just hold on to the asset versus, you know, if you if you were validating and becoming a staker. So for the quarter, this is the fee burn. We mentioned, we showed it on the last, last visual. This is like the dollar value of the amount of ETH that was burned. And that's calculated on the day and the date that the actual ETH was burned, the market. It looks at the market price um, at that time. So $559 million worth of ETH was, was burned. That was up Q4, was a pretty active quarter on chain. So that was up 
uh, over Q3, uh, 57%. This is the issuance. So $406 million of new ETH was, was issued to those validators. That was also up. And that number does increase if more stakers come onto the network as well. And then we have the value of, this is the, the, the flow. So if you just, if you're holding onto the asset, you want to understand like, was I inflated or did the, did the token deflate? The token is deflating. There's less of it circulating and the market value didn't change or it went up. That means that's value that accrued to you as a holder of the asset. So that's the $152 million here, uh, which was up, which was up quite a bit from last quarter. Um, now, if you're staking, you know, and this is not risk-free, I've heard some people, you know, mention that this is like the risk-free rate. Uh, it's definitely not risk-free because you're taking on smart contract risk here. But if you were staking, now you're capturing some of these fees. Uh, these are the priority fees paid to these validators. This is, you know, the priority fee is really just user fee. It's the amount that's not getting burnt. It's essentially, some people view this as like a tip, like the users are tipping the the validators. This is basically like the 20% of the fee that doesn't get burned. That was up a little bit over last quarter. MEV is also part of this like tip. You know, there is something called maximum extractable value. I don't want to go into the details of this, but it's essentially like arbitrage opportunities and people that are sort of um, doing arbitrage. Some of that value creation actually gets paid out. There are protocols that are kicking that value of the arbitrage out to the actual validators on the network, which is kind of cool that you can capture some of that. And that was 133 million for the quarter, up a little bit over Q4. The ETH issuance is the same that, that we saw up top here. Because that's new issuance and you're, you're a validator, you capture that. It's it's actually value to you versus like almost an expense if you're the holder, just holding the asset. Um, that came out to $786 million of value to, to stakers for the quarter. So that's a big difference from just holding the asset, right? Of course, again, not risk-free. It's not risk-free because you're taking on smart contract risk to do that, but it's good to understand what you potentially are leaving on the table. And maybe the strategy is just to stake a little bit. So you're offsetting potentially some of the upside here. Um, but that's, that's an important exercise for any investor to understand. I think almost like if you're almost like if you were going to pick a stock that paid a nice dividend, versus one that maybe just had growth upside and you were trying to figure out what's the difference. Um, it's that type of exercise uh, to go through here. Wow, like uh, you've only opened three tabs and uh, I can see like so much of value in this edition of Ethereum investment framework. And I can see that there are still so many other tabs within this spreadsheet, which is a part of so many spreadsheets that you've got that you use to collate the Ethereum investment framework for this uh, quarter. So I can't wait for it to be released. I have already seen it and I know it's great, but I can't wait to see the feedback that you get from the potentially millions of people that this is gonna go out to. So can't wait for that. I know you've got other metrics that you wanna showcase, but I'm really keen to see the L1 comps as well, but I'll leave it to you on how you wanna proceed further. But I'm really keen to see L1 comps for this quarter. Let's take a look. And you're right. There's uh, there are quite a few tabs. If people are watching this on YouTube, can see you know there's quite a few tabs here. And I'm not going to go through every single one of them during this this show. Maybe it makes sense. We do have a bunch of uh, operating and and KPIs 
uh, that we go through again all the way back through inception. I'm going to pass on this because there's there's quite a bit here. Um, and I think it makes sense. Just let's let's look at the L1 cop data and just walk through this real quick. So this is included again in the framework. What we're doing here is we're just looking at what we think are the the key um, cop data to look at. So and we break this down into four separate categories. So we have operating, valuation, decentralization, and social scores. We we look at the top ten L1 networks. We do not include Bitcoin in here because we're comparing Ethereum to smart contract platforms. And I know there's there's some innovation now happening on on Bitcoin and there's like layer twos in Bitcoin DeFi. We'll, we'll have to cover this actually on a future episode. But for now, we're leaving Bitcoin off of this. We view Bitcoin as sort of a separate monetary asset, digital gold. So we're comparing against the other smart contract developer platforms here. And really, I think the key takeaway, you know, we look at average daily active users, transactions, for developers, value locked, market values, you know, revenues. And then we look at like valuation metrics, just, you know, looking at market cap to TVL, market cap to revenues, things like that. The, the takeaway on here is that Ethereum, you know, has most of the market on the stuff that really matters. So if you're looking at the 365 day revenues and you're looking at Ethereum and comparing to the top 10, Ethereum owns like 90% of the, the market there. And, you know, part of that's the transaction fees are high and, and we'll see how that, where that goes future. But the fact that people are willing to pay those fees within Ethereum definitely says something. Total value locked, like just, you know, 80% of the market on total value locked from a developer perspective, closer to about 20% or so. And we'll get into some of the developer activity as well a little bit later. But I think the key takeaways here is this is what we're trying to do here is just have an objective view of, you know, how do we compare Ethereum to other other layer one blockchains, and then just objectively rank them against each other. And then we compare what our ranking system tells us to what the market actually says. So this is in the report as well. And people can look at, people can get a feel for how to do relative comparisons. Amazing. What about the DeFi comps? Again, we've got basically the DeFi OG protocols, and we're, we're doing similar exercise here. These are, you know, not perfectly apples to apples because we're comparing against different categories. So we've got Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange. We've got Aave, Lenbaro. These are sort of the top like OG protocols. GMX is exchange futures. Synthetics is a derivatives platform. MakerDAO is, you know, stablecoin and money, money market. Um, and then Lido. So this is an exercise similar to the L1 comps, though not as much apples to apples to really look. We're trying to identify like what we think is like from a fundamental perspective, the most undervalued like DeFi project out there. Um, and that's kind of the exercise we're going through here. We've also got GDP, right? This is another way that we do. We, I think we may have mentioned this last week when we were talking about valuation. One of the best ways I think to, to like do relative comparisons is with this like GDP uh, metric. And what this is doing is it's saying Ethereum is a layer one blockchain. It's essentially infrastructure that supports other protocols and applications that are being built, you know, on top of that core infrastructure. And so you could look at it almost like this is how you would look at a country, right? Like America has a system of property rights and laws, and that's sort of the foundation. And then the economy is built on top of that. And so this gives you an idea of like which sectors within Ethereum 
are driving the, month, the most GDP, which is just the 12-month fees by sector. And the, the um, DeFi is definitely like where most of the activity comes from on Ethereum today. But in total, we, did, we had about $2.7 billion. This is not capturing everything. I would say it's, it's most of it, but we're pulling this again, pulling this data out of Token Terminal. This is covering over 100 projects uh, that are built on Ethereum. So, I mean, uh, just quickly on this, first of all, this is very insightful. And I love how you phrase it as the Ethereum GDP. I think uh, even for new people who are in the crypto space, if they see this Ethereum framework um, and they see this particular slide, they would be like, wow, this makes sense. Like Ethereum is a whole network ecosystem and it's not just speculation happening. We can see gaming happening. We can see, you know, NFT happening. Stable coins are also happening. But one key takeaway for me is that how undervalued is the DeFi insurance sector? It's just like literally no innovation there uh, or no activity there. So maybe that is something that we probably might see either this year or next year, you know, more good insurance protocols uh, that might see some usage uh, among the DeFi users. Yeah, I would agree. There's really only like one, this Nexus Mutual is really the main insurance DeFi protocol currently. And yeah, less than a million dollars in, in revenues there. And there's probably an opportunity to build something interesting with with uh, DeFi, with insurance um, in DeFi. Number one was Texas. I think that's the most obvious, like, you know, product market fit in DeFi right now. And Uniswap was about 22% of the entire gas consumption on Ethereum last year, to give you an idea of sort of where DeFi comes in here. And then liquid staking, this is mostly Lido. That's, that's you know, driving most of those, those revenues there. So yeah, it gives you a good kind of high level. And then you can compare this again to other L1s to say, just like you would compare the economy of United States versus that of China, right? Uh, to, to see the health. So another nice way to do, do comparisons. Um, what else we got, Shiv? We got a few more things we maybe we can cover before we... So yeah, look... Quickly, uh, before we cover everything else, I think what this has highlighted, and again, for our viewers over here, this Ethereum Investment Framework report created by Michael from the DeFi report is definitely not only for analysts. It's for academics like me who teach crypto. It's for entrepreneurs so they can get insights of what is a gap in the market, just like how we spoke just now that insurance could be something that innovation can take place. So this is for a very wide audience. Anybody new to crypto, this is for you. Anybody who's, you know, old in crypto, but is trying to get some insights on what next to create, this is for you. For analysts out there, this is for you. Great report so far. Love the, what we are covering over here on the rundown, Michael. If you're asking me, I want to know, yeah, you got it. Ethereum 2017 versus 2023. Uh, this is always a nice one to sort of just get a feel for like, you know, where we're at. So Ethereum in 2017, December 2017, that was the sort of the peak of the bull run, really Ethereum's first bull run because Ethereum was created in 2015. Um, and this was really when it became, this was the ICO boom and Ethereum really got onto people's radars at this point. So it's kind of nice to go back and just see what were the fundamentals, you know, that drove the, the, the market price got to over $1,300 back then. This is now you know, seven years ago, six, seven years ago. And so just seeing where we're at now and comparing some of these metrics. So the trailing 
12 month fees in December of 2017 were 47 million. We did 2.4 billion in a, in a crypto. That was a bull market, right? We did 2.4 in a crypto winter six years later, which is almost a 5,000% increase. Again, crypto winter. In terms of like the active devs, you had 345. This actually, this number is is gone up even more. Um, but you've, you're, you're seeing just, when you think about layer one blockchains, they're essentially selling, this is infrastructure, right? They're not selling to consumers, they're selling to developers. So you need to see the developer number continue to go up. And, you know, that's what we're seeing as well. Um, and we can see just that growth just over the last six years here. You know, non-zero wallets. These are these are wallet addresses that have some some Ethereum or another popular ERC20 in them. So it could be a stable coin, but there's these are wallets that have some value in them on the network. There were 6.8 million. That's how small, you know, Ethereum was back in December of 2017. 6.8 million is nothing. We now have over 111 million globally. So again, massive, massive change here. Total value locked, like DeFi wasn't even a thing um, back in, in 2017. Um, so obviously this number is, is gone up quite a bit. We got 28 billion in value locked today. In terms of gas consumption, we can see, you know, just how much more the network is being used. ETH and smart contracts, you know, again, we're just seeing like the utility of ETH and how people are utilizing that within the network. Inflation, right? 11% in, in, in 2017, now we are deflationary. And then of course you can see, does this make sense? And my view here is that, you know, the market was way, way, way out over its skis back in 2017, based on what these fundamentals were, you know, this was the market price um, at the end of the year, 2000, 2.2,000, you know, does that make sense given the growth over the last six years? You know, that's the, for the market just to decide. I, I tend to think it might be underpriced today and it was, it was overpriced back in, in 17. Absolutely love this analysis because this helps to give that comparative mindset, right? In anybody's mind. And like you said, it seems like 2017 was probably when uh, we were living in a fool's era when looking at Ethereum. It was overvalued. Now it seems like it's undervalued. But my take about these asset classes, especially considering crypto, is that I think we're just going to continue be discovering the prices. So the exercise that you are doing with the Ethereum investment framework is so important, firstly, because you're laying down the foundation but it's going to be a routine exercise quarter after quarter and the market is going to continuously discover what is actually the price for not only ethereum but for these crypto asset classes these crypto networks um so yeah love this analysis if you ask me for layman's term out there i think ethereum is undervalued but we're not over here to give financial advice but yes when somebody looks at it if i look at it it seems like ethereum is undervalued yeah no i, I agree and you know We'll see. We'll see wh how that plays out. Um, there is a world where this number goes down. So we don't know, not financial advice, but we look at the data to try to determine was the market right back then? Is it right today? Where, what, do, you know, how do we get a feel for this? We could also look at, you know, we covered Bitcoin versus Ethereum in, in the framework, you know, really just to say like Bitcoin's different. Our view is that Bitcoin's different. We talk a lot about it, how we think Ethereum, you know, has such strong network effects that it looks like it's on a path to becoming a global monopoly. And we view Bitcoin the same way, right? So, and I think important for people watching this, we are not 
you know, ideological or tribal, you know, we, we support Bitcoin. We, there, there is this nature of like, if I write the Ethereum investment framework, that's some reason that I'm opposed to Bitcoin or something. That's, that's not the case. I just look at the data and we started with Ethereum primarily because it has the most, it has the most robust cash flows and network effects and those things that we can speak to, but we are planning on doing a Bitcoin uh, framework, probably a Solana one uh, as well. But yeah, just comparing the two, you know, they really shouldn't be compelled to start with. They probably shouldn't be compared to each other because we view them as different. But it's also useful just to go through this ex exercise. In terms of non-zero wallets, Bitcoin has uh, less than half the the number that Ethereum has. You know, transaction fees. Again, this is a Ethereum is a developer platform, so there's many use cases and things that users can do on Ethereum that you can't really do on Bitcoin, and that's why these fees are so much higher on Ethereum versus Bitcoin. Um, average daily active addresses. Uh, Bitcoin is is leading on this one. So almost a million uh, active addresses on Bitcoin per day versus an average of about 350,000. So pretty small on, on Ethereum. We're going to get to this in a little bit, but most of this, a lot of this activity on Ethereum is now moving up to layer two, which we'll, we'll get to. And that's that's part of the story there. Again, Bitcoin doesn't really have DeFi on it. And so that's why there's very little $280 million of value locked on chain versus, you know, 28 billion for Ethereum. You know, we talked about the inflation rate. Bitcoin has a fixed monetary policy. We know exactly what Bitcoin's inflation rate is today. We know what it's going to be tomorrow. And we know what it's going to be after the next halving in April. So this is going to go down. This is going to be cut in half. So it'll be much, it'll be less than 1% um, after the next halving. Ethereum does not have a fixed monetary policy. We talked about this is really dependent on the on-chain activity, which which leads to those automatic stock buybacks, if you want to call them that, that where they would burn the token. That's offsetting the the, the inflation rate, uh, the network issuance. And for last year, it came out to uh, minus 0.29% uh, deflation. Um, in terms of developers... Um, this this number I updated this on the this is from the developer report, um, the seven point eight thousand number. Both of these numbers are. Um, I should probably update that on the prior prior visual that we just looked at. But yeah, monthly active developer. This is from the the developer report that Electric Capital puts out. Highly recommend people give that a view. That goes into a lot of depth on what's happening in these ecosystems amongst developers. But again, you know, if Ethereum is a development platform, that's why it's you know, got many more developers than Bitcoin, but, but yeah, that's that Bitcoin versus Ethereum by the numbers comparison. Amazing, amazing. And I know that Bitcoin versus Ethereum is a crowd favorite for people to do comparisons. So this is a great addition in the Ethereum investment framework report. Now, I would just say that, yeah, like let's do the prize action through cycles uh, before we get into the key takeaways. So real quick here, um, you know, this is, we analyze things like going back to network inception, then we also look at just like what is happening from a cycle to cycle perspective. And that's really what this um, visual is looking at here. This is primarily looking at the price action. We also have this same visual looking at the operating metrics, the on-chain operating metrics cycle by cycle as well. But, you know, if you were just to look at, you know, this is, we're about three months before the halving. So I'm just sort of looking at it from that perspective. The price of Ethereum three months before the, ha the first halving was in was at eight dollars and twenty cents you know three months 
you know, this wasn't that long ago, May of 2020, Ethereum was trading at $257. And now we're sitting at, you know, 2.4K. And we can see like, what's the growth? The growth, we went up over 3,000% last cycle. We're now up 853% already to give you an idea of like where this potentially is going. Um, price at having, we look at this. This is really to try to look at what happened in the past and then we compare this with the operating data to say like, what is a reasonable projection for how the market's gonna value this thing if we enter another like bull, bull market period. And these projected values we're looking at in column D here are based on the actuals, or I'm sorry, that, that's really more for the operating metrics. These are based on prior growth patterns. So, so we're kind of extrapolating out what happened previously and you can, you'll be able to see that in the percentage change numbers here, where we're usually pretty somewhat conservative. The price target that we have here um, shows it getting, you know, to a pretty high valuation. That would, that would be 180% increase over the last cycle. So it was 248%. You know, we went to 48, 4.8K last cycle, which was a 2.4X increase over the prior price high. So gives you an idea of where we go. Again, not financial advice. Um, we look at what's the volatility potentially going to look like on the backside of this. Where would the post cycle low potentially be, right? That's another analysis we do. So yeah, just gives you an idea. Again, if you stare at enough data, you will start to get some insights. And that's really why we go through this. This is like multiple days of me combing through data and then trying to kind of surface myself and say, okay, what are the key takeaways? And maybe we can get into some of those takeaways here. Before we get into the key takeaways, I just want to ask you, Michael, I know it, but for our viewers' benefit, I want to ask you this question. This 130-page report, did you say? 130-page report, each and every little detail has been collated, analyzed, and written just by you, right? Correct. That is just impressive, and I would like to applaud you, Michael. Like This is just really impressive stuff, and the fact that you are giving this out for free speaks volume of your contribution to this industry. I think I speak on behalf of at least all of our combined subscribers that we are your fans. Incredible work. I mean, we just spent 45 minutes discussing about, I think so, only 1% of what you've covered in Ethereum investment framework. And my mind is filled with all these numbers and analysis and insights already. So thanks a lot for doing this. I think you do great stuff for the crypto investment ecosystem. I'm really looking forward for the release of this and see the feedback around Thank it. you. Yeah, no, it might be crazy too. You could, you could, you could add that in there as well, because it is a lot, it is a lot of work, but no, I, I'm, I'm hoping to get some good feedback from the community on this. It is a 130 page document, but actually maybe I should pull, pull up real quick. This is the table of contents of the actual document. You'll notice these are the page numbers. These are like, they're short little, they're almost like very short little chapters. So it reads, it reads kind of nicely. It does, it's, it, this is how I like to read books myself to have like these kind of short chapters. You get a few takeaways. We designed this, it's very interactive. You can click through, you can just kind of click all over the document, go, go to the table contents, go back to a section. All of these table contents are clickable. But yeah, the idea is that you can kind of leave it open on your desktop. You've got all the information in front of you. You don't need to read it all at once. Maybe you come back to it, take some notes, have a conversation, come back to it. That's that's kind of the idea. But yeah, why don't we wrap it up with a few takeaways? And then I, I'd love to show people just like how we 
get this data you know out of token terminal as well which we'll get to just to close it up here so yeah what what are the key takeaways michael because you've gone through all this analysis no better person to ask apart the, from the you. key takeaways i think you know just looking at just from like the like quantitative perspective looking at all the data is you know 2023 was a crypto winter year we saw a lot of on-chain activity pick up in q4 and the markets also came back in q4 but the key takeaways for me are that Ethereum is scaling. And that's why I want to wrap it up with sort of this like data on layer twos, because this is really the story to me is like these layer twos started to come out over the last couple of years during this crypto winter. And to me, what we're going to see happen in the bull market is the market coming to realization that crypto, that, that Ethereum is scaling and the data points to this. So we're looking at active users. Ethereum is doing about 400,000, 350 to 400,000 per day on average. We're now seeing some of these layer twos. The yellow here is ZK Sync actually doing more daily users than this is showing monthly. But even on some days, we're seeing uh, ZK Sync actually do more daily active users than Ethereum itself. So the network is scaling. People will say, well, wait a minute, the transactions still haven't dropped to under a penny. You know, there's still work to do and, and they're, they're right. But what's clear is that there is developer activity picking up and, and I'll show the developer activity now. So the users are, are, are flocking to L2. Developers are also picking up. This white line is showing layer two developers versus Ethereum developers. And you can see down here, like this blue line is Ethereum kind of coming down a little bit um, towards the end of last year. But the L2 activity is is picking up. So it's either there, the electric capital developer report gets into a lot of this where developers are now in many ways multi-chain. So if you're in Ethereum and you've been an Ethereum developer, you're probably doing some stuff on Arbitrum or on Optimism or on CK Sync uh, as well. And so, you know, activity from the developing developing community is growing on L2. If we looked at transactions, again, you're just seeing like this this growth, Ethereum is the purple, pretty steady. So it's not like people are leaving Ethereum necessarily. It's more that L2s are just kind of growing off of it. And we can see, obviously, there's the chart is sloping up into the right, which is, which is what you want to see. And then in terms of fees, we can see that the L2 fees are growing. Of course, those transaction fees are much lower. And so when Ethereum gets back into a bull market, it actually starts to pick up. Uh, and eat into you know the total, but and 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 generally speaking, we're at about 11% of all of Ethereum's fees are coming from L2s at this point. So, or or at least the the number the amount of user fees that are happening on L2 represent about 11% of what we see on the L1. That number got up almost to 20%, up to 18% or so uh, in Q4, and then. This has come down because Ethereum has Ethereum had a big quarter Q4. Obviously, the the gas fees on Ethereum are higher, so that's why that's sloping down for the last quarter. But to me, this is really the big takeaway: is L2s are growing in terms of users, transactions, developers, uh, and fees. And what tends to happen in crypto cycles is that there's sort of the Bitcoin having, and that's really the narrative. But there's also like an innovation cycle and the market becoming aware of things that happened during the crypto winter. To me, what happened in the crypto winter is L2s are growing, scaling. What I'm looking for is to see what are the use cases that these new L2s could enable that 
all of a sudden we actually start to get the consumer apps that everybody's waiting for. Because again, layer one Ethereum is selling to other developers. They're not selling to consumers. It's important for people to realize this. This is why crypto hasn't gone mainstream yet. We're building infrastructure. The layer twos, those developers are selling to consumers. So that's where we're going here. So now as these start to scale out, we may see a game or we may see like a social media app or something or some cool thing with NFTs that people are having, aren't able to, to even imagine right now ends up getting built because the infrastructure has gotten to that, that scalability phase where you can offer like a really good user experience to those consumers. So that's, that's the big takeaway. Hopefully this isn't too much data stuffed down people's throats. Um, but I recommend people check out the report. It is free. We'll have a link in the show notes. Um, but yeah, this is this has been great. This is great. Like, uh, and I love the key takeaways that you suggested. Uh, that you know, maybe in future we're going to see a lot of uh, a lot more layer two activity, as these charts suggest. And I love what you how you phrased it. Ethereum is kind of like the commodity in a way that is helping layer twos to act as refiners of that commodity so that eventually it can go to consumers. Uh, so I loved how you phrased it, and it seems like this is probably the way it might play out in future. We'll probably discuss about it in the next quarter when the fourth issue of Ethereum Investment Framework would come out with an additional 40, 50 pages, uh, just like how your pages have increased since the last issues with more and more analysis. But this was great, Michael. Loved it. Uh, but curious, how did you get all this data? We should probably hop on chain into the token terminal and, and I'll show everyone. Oh, so is this time to go to going on chain with token I terminal? I think it's time. I'll, uh, I'll see you in the terminal. All right, so here we are in the terminal. Shout out token terminal. And yeah, most of the data in the Ethereum investment framework is being sourced out of token terminal. And we prefer token terminal primarily because they're a full stack provider. So they are running all of the node infrastructure to source all the data of these blockchains. Then they have the teams internally that are then structuring all that data, visualizing the data and presenting it in ways that's visually appealing, makes it easy for people like me to, to do our analysis. And then we can also do things like export data out of here and create some interesting charts and things like that. So uh, just a quick walkthrough, like we're on Ethereum's you know, main page right now, if you just search Ethereum in here and most of the operating and like performance data that we pull for the Ethereum investment framework, we're pulling off of here. And this has, you know, fees and you can kind of get the margins and supply side uh, fees, revenues, expenses, token incentives. Uh, we pull most of the data for operating KPIs right out of here. This has, you know, they're looking at the GitHub repositories so we have developer data, transaction data, pretty much everything you need from like a sort of network health perspective, right, right through this main interface here. And of course, if you want to do some interesting things that is outside of just sort of using these toggle buttons, you can always export data out of here, right? So we just download right to a CSV in Excel and put together your own charts uh, as well. So that's kind of operating API data. We talked about GDP. Uh, earlier where we're essentially trying to pull the revenues from all the different use cases built on top of Ethereum. So Token Terminal has this, you know, market sector view 
And so what we do there is we're pulling, you know, we're coming in here and we're looking at, okay, based on asset management, you know, we can, we can start to pull out all the different revenues for that sector. Of course, there are, there are some projects that are going to be, you know, doing services on Ethereum, but also other blockchains. So then we just strip out what, what the activity that, that occurred on the other chains. But this is how we get to GDP. Currently, we'd love to see actually this get built in-house and token terminals working on this actually to just have to just do this automatically where they're they're looking at only projects built on ethereum pulling those revenues and then just giving us that so we can do a relative comparison to solana and you know avalanche other other networks you know when we look at like what is happening in terms of like on-chain usage how is ethereum being used today by projects. This is where we come. We go to uh, trending contracts. And so what this is looking at is, for example, Uniswap, you know, how much of Ethereum's gas consumption comes from Uniswap, right? Um, How much is coming from layer two is you could add up, you know, the first layer two is Arbitrum here. Um, There's a few others that start to show up a little bit farther down the leaderboard. ZK Sync, StarkNet, these are layer twos. You got Coinbase showing up down here. You, we can get a feel for exactly which applications are driving the most value. And, and you mentioned like the Ethereum investment framework. I think like researchers and analysts and asset managers and those types of people get a ton of value from it. But if you're an entrepreneur or you're like you said, an educator or you work in Web3, like you may find a different sort of source of value. Like for example, if you're an entrepreneur, you may look in here and say, interesting, like no one's doing this, I have an idea and I don't see that as like a top use case on Ethereum right now. Like maybe, maybe you go and build that, you know, MetaMask is the most popular wallet, you know, in Ethereum, we can see, you know, how they're capturing value from their users and how they're driving, uh, on-chain usage, uh, to Ethereum. So this is, this is where we go to get like more granular details. We can also look at user retention via the cohort analysis here. Um, we're just looking, this is Uniswap that we've pulled up here and you can look at, you know, various periods, how many users are being onboarded. That's this initial cohort column here. And then how good is the protocol at getting them to return as a, as an active user on a monthly basis, um, going forward. That's where we get that data. There's, you know, if we wanted to do an analysis of how Ethereum is being used you know, with stable coins, you know, we would just come in here, filter this on Ethereum, and we could look, we could look at the various stablecoin issuers and do an analysis of, you know, how many token holders, how many wallet addresses are interacting with that particular issuer. This is, you know, PayPal is the, is the name of Paxos is the issuer. This is PayPal stablecoin. We could look at the volumes and transaction volumes and um, really get a feel for like which stablecoin issuers and providers are doing the most volume. And then you could also take that and then you could compare it against other blockchains and see which, which chains are, are being used for payments. So that's, that's most of it. They have, again, you know, token terminals always coming out with new things. Um, if you are a venture capitalist or for me, like I use this fundraises feature here, and this is like a leading indicator of sort of that innovation cycle. Like if I see that there's a bunch of projects that are being, that the venture capitalists are seeding on Solana, for example, versus Ethereum, 
then that to me is a leading indicator that there's there's some serious capital being put into the Solana ecosystem that will not be sort of realized. The, that money is going to be is going to go to developers. They're going to go build things. Most of them will probably fail, but like some of those things will actually become uh, useful applications, hopefully. So that gives you kind of a way to have a leading indicator of what to expect uh, in the future by looking at what venture capitalists are, are doing. Um, so that's just another feature, but this is just a sample of how we use token terminal to really inform, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the takeaways that come out of the Ethereum investment framework. So this was amazing power packed episode. I think this was like a one hour masterclass, uh, but in actuality, it was a one hour sneak peek of what to expect from the Ethereum investment framework, which is like an encyclopedia that you publish every quarter. So this was great and can't thank enough token terminal. Uh, for all their great platform building that they are doing that enables Ethereum Investment Framework and the Rundown Podcast. So thanks a lot, Michael, for all this. Do you have anything further to add for our viewers about the Ethereum Investment Framework? This has been a useful, very useful exercise for me. And what I'm trying to do is just help people like really get up to speed as fast as possible. So if people have feedback, it's always welcome. I get more value from negative feedback, actually, than positive. And that goes for the the rundown show as well. We'd love for people to tell us what they like, what they don't like. The goal is to make it better every quarter. We, we update the data. Of course, Ethereum is a living, breathing ecosystem. And so things are changing. We talk a lot about that uh, as well. There are new data availability systems that are coming into play that we, we talk about. Yeah, that's it. I'm, I, I hope it's useful for the community. I hope this episode gives people a, a glimpse into it that may make you want to go and download it. It's free. Um, and yeah, hope, hope people find some value. Uh, and it. Amazing, Michael. Look, for all the guys out there, not only for the Rundown podcast, but also for Ethereum Investment Framework, for which we're going to post the download link on our respective show notes, highly recommend to check it out. If you love the podcast episode, subscribe and share this episode with your colleagues in TradFi, in crypto, whether they're an analyst or whether they're an entrepreneur, and also do the same for the Ethereum Investment Framework. As you heard from the OG himself, Michael, he collated, analyzed, wrote the entire 130-page Ethereum investment framework by himself. So go check it out. Subscribe DeFi Report and support him for all the great work that he does for the crypto ecosystem, just so that this ecosystem expands with a lot of integrity. So on that note, Michael, thanks a lot again for another great episode of the Rundown podcast and for all the great work that you did for Ethereum Investment Framework, your third issue of it. Uh, the very best of luck. We'll see you all the next time. Bye.